We're going to be in the book of Joshua this morning, Joshua chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you want to get to the book of Joshua as we continue in our series, uh, Legacy, about Old Testament leaders. We'll be in this series all the way through the summer. So this morning, Joshua chapter 6. A few years ago, I asked some of my Facebook friends, what is some advice that your parents gave you when you were young that didn't really make sense at the time, but now that you're grown up, it makes more sense. So I was thinking, for example, my dad used to always say, life's not fair, right? Anytime there was some sort of inequity in the household, we felt we had been treated unequally. Dad would say, you know, son, life isn't fair. I hated it when he said that, and I didn't understand it. And yet as I've grown up, I've found that uh, truer words have rarely been spoken, right? Life is simply not fair, Uh, Some of my other friends, some of the things that they said their parents told them, uh, you rarely win when you're fighting against stupid. Uh, I particularly like this one. All you have to do is open up Facebook and you see the truth of this reality. You rarely win when you're fighting against stupid. Uh, Another one, it's not my job to be your friend, but to be a parent. There will be a time when I'll be your friend, but it's not today. Uh, Another one, her mom said, don't date math majors. They're weird. So she didn't understand that until later, apparently. Uh, one, one guy said, you know, don't run with scissors was something my parents always said. And we laughed at it until he said, my brother bought a brand new house and he and his wife were enjoying freedom in this house that belonged to them, running through the house saying, this is our house, we can do what we want. And he was running around with scissors and he said, look, I can run around with scissors in my house. And he tripped and he fell and he poked a big hole in one of the doors of his brand new house. And he realized the wisdom of don't run with scissors. Uh, One person said, be nice to your brother. Didn't understand that when he was young. That was actually my brother who wrote that. Uh, This one I liked. If a crisis can be solved with money, it is not a crisis. The person said that was from her dad, who was a loan officer. So uh, our parents often have intuition about the world and understanding about the world that when we're little, we don't get it, right? We, we think we know better. And so they tell us things and we go, yeah, 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 whatever. It doesn't make sense to us when we're young, but hopefully as we mature, we start to understand the value of the things that they tell us to do. The reason I share this this morning is because I think a lot of times as believers in Jesus Christ, we approach our relationship with God in much the same way. That as we read through the scripture, we find a lot of commands of God and a lot of principles of God that on the surface of them, they don't make a whole lot of sense. Especially when we compare the values of God to the values of the world around us. So, for example, we read the scripture and we read passages like, pray without ceasing. Right? And we go, now why would I invest my time in prayer? When a lot of times I pray and I, it doesn't seem like God answers. Right? Why would I invest my time in something that seems unproductive when I have a million other seemingly more productive things to do? And yet the scripture says we are called to pray, to develop that relationship with God. Right? Why is it that the scripture says that sexuality is to be reserved only for the marriage context between husband and wife, right? And we look around us and we say virtually everywhere in our culture, we see different messages being conveyed. In fact, we see different messages being conveyed about sexuality. And in fact, we seem to hear the message that if you'll just step outside of God's boundaries, you can have a happier, more pleasure-filled life. 
right? So why would we obey God's commands? Why would I be honest 100% at school or at the workplace when it doesn't seem to bring me any immediate benefit and in fact it might bring me harm to do so in the short run? Why would I trust God with my money and give away some of it when I'm not sure 100% how he's going to provide a year from now or tomorrow? All right, so as we read the scripture, all too often we run up against a conflict between what we think is right and what the scripture says God is calling us to do. And we, we struggle with that. Right? Now, as we get into the book of Joshua, as we continue in the book of Joshua this morning, we're going to see a moment just like that in the life of the nation of Israel, where God asks them to do something for, that from a human perspective really doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? God is going to give them a battle plan that on the surface of it is quite ridiculous, to be honest. And yet he's going to call them to trust him. Now, if you remember last week, as we started the book of Joshua, we talked about how Joshua, this, this new leader, right? He's following Moses. He's leading the people into the land that God had promised. And they have now crossed the Jordan, right? We've gone from Joshua 1 to Joshua 6. God parted the Jordan River. They walked across the Jordan River. And now they're on the west side of the Jordan, going into the promised land. And the first major battle that they're going to encounter is at the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho was a critical city if you wanted to control this land of Canaan, what we now know as the land of Israel. It was just on the west side of the Jordan River, a very significant city. You could not control the promised land if you didn't control Jericho. Right, so this is their very first big battle as they go in to take the land God had promised. And, and you'll remember the Canaanites were a warrior people and they were huge. They're described as giants. To the, the Israelites, they looked like they were grasshoppers compared to the Canaanites. They had huge walled cities. In fact, a few years ago, there was an archaeologist, an archaeology team who discovered an ancient Canaanite wall outside of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of the types of walls that the Canaanites built. Now, obviously, this is not Jericho because you probably know the end of the Jericho story. But this was a wall outside of Jerusalem. It's 26 feet high and it's made of solid stone. All right, these are the kinds of cities that the Canaanites built, right? So it was a fortified city, huge people, advanced weaponry, and a critical battle that the Israelites are walking into under Joshua. And here's what's going to happen. As they go toward the battle, God says, I want you to pursue this battle in a way that nobody else would pursue a battle against a superior enemy. And on the surface of it, it looks like a ridiculous plan. And yet what we'll see is as they trust God, when he asks them to do something strange, his character is revealed in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be revealed. As they trust God, God's name is known in the nations in a way that it would not otherwise be known if they pursued the battle in their own way. And so as I read Joshua 6, the question that really keeps coming up into my mind is when God's word asks me to do something countercultural, something strange, something that doesn't make sense, and I wrestle with trusting him, can I trust that God's plan is always the best one, that his character is always trustworthy? That's what we're going to see in Joshua 6 this morning. And it may be you find yourself at that kind of a threshold in your life where there is some moment at which you sense, you know, God's asking me to trust him and I don't understand it. He's asking me to trust him more with my family, 
with my marriage, with my money, with my time, and I don't know if I can. Yeah, what we'll see is that as the Israelites do that, they see that God is always faithful. God is always trustworthy. God is always good. Look with me at Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to start by reading the first 14 verses of Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the Ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor let your voice be heard nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. All right, the first thing that we see here is this. God's plans can be hard to understand. Now, I just read a lot of verses, and my guess is that somewhere halfway through those verses, it started to feel a little bit repetitive, right? It's talking a lot about them walking around, and it describes the order in which they walked around. describes Joshua telling them to walk around, and then they walk around, and then they go to bed, and then they get up the next day, and they walk around. Right now, why is it that there's this level of detail in the book of Joshua? Here's what I think. I believe Joshua, when he wrote this, wanted to put us just a little bit into the shoes of the people who had to do this, the Israelites. A little bit of suspense. They walk around on the first day. They go to bed. They wake up. Day two, they walk around on the second day. Go to bed. Wake up. Day three. Day four, day five, day six, day seven. And all they do is walk around. All right, that's it. All they do is walk around. And Joshua's instructions from God are this. You're going to walk around for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times. And then when I tell you to, you're just going to shout. And the wall is going to come down. Now, on the face of it, this is a ridiculous battle plan. And here's why. I want you to imagine for just a second that you were a boxer. Okay, let's put this in a different context. Imagine you're training as a boxer and you hire a trainer and he says, okay, here's our plan. You're going to go in the ring and you're going to circle your opponent. That's what you're going to do. You're going to just circle around him and you go, man, that's great. That sounds intimidating. And then what do we do? 
Well, then you're going to circle him again. Oh, great. Okay, so we're going to circle him a couple of times. And then what? Well, then you're going to circle again and again and again and again. You go, okay, I get it. The circling deal. When's the hitting part, right? When is the part where I'm going to hit him? They go, no, no hitting. No hitting. What you're going to do is from the corner, I'm going to give you a thumbs up and you're going to go up to your opponent and you're just going to go, ah! And he will fall down. That's it. Now, what would you say? I need a new trainer. That's a ridiculous plan. You don't win a boxing match by circling around your opponent and never hitting him. Nor do you win a battle by walking around and around and around blowing trumpets for seven days and then shouting. That doesn't happen. They never are instructed to draw a weapon. They never are instructed to go knock down the wall. All they do is march around. And I think Joshua describes this in such detail because by the seventh day, what's probably going on is either the inhabitants of Jericho are terrified or they are laughing their heads off at these people marching and marching and marching and marching. Probably a force of around 600,000 men just before they had crossed the Jordan. That was the number of Israelites in the census. 600,000 men. They can't even talk. They're not even allowed to say anything. If I had been one of those guys, I'd have been so tempted to say something, right? Just to look up and go, this is going to make sense in a few days, right? Watch out. They can't say anything. They just march and then they shout. All right, so God's plans can be hard to understand. And we're going to see as we move forward why God gives such an unusual plan. But it's not uncommon at all, as you read the scriptures, that sometimes God asks his people to do weird things. Right? As you read the Old Testament in particular, you read the lives of the prophets. There are some interesting things God asks them to do. Right? So a lot of people know about Hosea the prophet, who's instructed to marry a prostitute. Some people, fewer people may remember the story of Isaiah, Isaiah 20. He's supposed to prophesy the destruction of Egypt. And you know what Isaiah has to do? He has to walk around naked for an entire year. And I always read that and I think, if you're Isaiah, how do you explain that to your wife and kids? Right, I have to go to work now. Maybe you should get dressed. You say, no, I am dressed for work. This is how God told me to dress for the next year to do his work. Ezekiel, which is one of the more unusual and difficult to understand books in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, in prophesying the siege of Jerusalem, he has to lie on his side with a little brick and lay siege to a brick, put little ramps up against it and everything and do that for a year in the middle of Israel. Often God's plans and God's commands are unusual and hard to understand. It's no different, by the way, when we get to the New Testament. In First Peter, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who had come out of paganism, Gentile Christians who had come out of paganism into a trust and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things he tells them is this, that the world around you is engaged in sexual immorality and drunkenness and sensuality and all kinds of sin. And then he says this in 1 Peter 4, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, right? In other words, he says, if you're following Jesus, here's what's gonna happen is people are gonna say, why don't you drink like we drink? Why don't you come to our parties anymore? 
Why do you keep sexuality confined to marriage when that doesn't seem like, in our opinion, the most enjoyable way to live? And they begin to ask this question. Why don't you do what we do? Why don't you watch what we watch? Why don't you think about the things we think about? Why don't you go where we go? Why is your life different from ours? Why do you serve a God that asks you to do strange things? And so as we go through the scripture, the people of God are quite often asked to pursue their lives in a way that is distinct from the world, right? And the question that's going to be put to the nation of Israel, the test really that they're put to is, will you trust God even when it makes no sense? I think that's the same question that is still in front of us as we walk with Jesus Christ. Will I trust God with my life? Will I obey his word even when it seems to make no sense from a human perspective? God's plans are often hard to understand. And what we'll see as we move forward in the passage is that as the Israelites follow God's difficult plans, they learn that God's character can be trusted, that God doesn't ask anything of us that is simply arbitrary. God never asks us to do something and then abandons us. God's character can always be trusted. And as we move through the conquest of Jericho, we're going to see a few aspects of God's character come to the forefront of this text as they learn that God's character can be trusted. The first aspect of his character we see is his faithfulness. I want to look at chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 for a minute. So you're going to go back just a little bit from chapter 6, starting in verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now you remember the manna was the bread that came down out of heaven for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. It's what they ate for 40 years. But what's interesting about this passage, even more than the fact that the manna stops, I think, is that right before they go into Jericho to conquer Jericho, they celebrate what feast? The Passover. Now, what is the Passover a celebration of? What is is it? It is a memorial of when God led the people out of Egypt. Remember, and the angel of death came, and if they had that blood painted on their doorpost, the angel would pass over their house and would not kill the firstborn in their home. Right? So the firstborn of the Egyptians died, but not of the Israelites. And Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. And so the Passover is this commemorative feast where what are they remembering? That God was faithful. 40 years ago to lead us out of Egypt after 400 years in slavery. That generation after generation after generation of God's people waited in slavery for 400 years and then God led us out. And so they're remembering God's faithfulness and the manna stops and they begin to eat from the land. For 40 years, they've been eating manna. Moses says in in Deuteronomy, Hey, for 40 years while you wandered around in the wilderness, guess what? Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell. Your sandals didn't wear out. For 40 years, God provided for you. Your clothes held up. Let me ask you in this room this morning, how many of you are wearing clothes that are 40 plus years old? I hope you're not, right? Because they're going to fall apart. But they celebrate the Passover because God wants them to remember right here 
I was faithful before. I will be faithful again. As I defeated the Egyptians, I will defeat the Canaanites. As I provided for you in Egypt, as I provided for you in the wilderness, I will provide for you in the promised land. If you want evidence that God will be faithful, you look back and you say the God who has always been good and always been faithful and always provided for his people will continue to do so. One of my favorite stories of martyrdom from the early centuries of the Christian church centers on a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century. Smyrna is in modern day Turkey. And the story goes that Polycarp, sometime in the second century, he was arrested for his faith in Jesus Christ and he was pressed to deny Jesus in order to save his life. And Polycarp said these words, he said, 80 and six years I have served him and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what you wilt. And they lit the fire. What was Polycarp saying? 86 years, he's been faithful to me. So I can trust him even now. Even in death, the God who has been faithful to me for 86 years will preserve me to eternal life because I trust him. His promises are true. And the Israelites would say, for 400 years in Egypt, God preserved our nation. For 40 years in the wilderness, he provided for us. He's faithful. We can trust him. I know for Shannon and me throughout the course of our marriage, periodically, we've had moments that we call our own little Ebenezer Stone moments. If you remember when they crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites set up what they called Ebenezer Stones, a stone of help, a reminder that God helped them in a moment that seemed bleak. And so we write down these moments. Here's where God provided when hope seemed thin. Here's where God carried us through in our marriage or with our kids or with the church when hope seemed thin. And the reason we do that is so that when we are facing one of these thresholds where we go, I don't know if I can trust God's plan right here. We pull out the list. And we say the best evidence that God will be faithful is that he has been faithful. I could trust him then. I can trust him today. I can trust him tomorrow. And so with this strange plan, they get a sense of God's faithfulness. They also begin to get a sense of God's holiness. God's holiness. I want to read chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. On the eve of the battle, God sends the captain of the Lord's host to say something very important to Joshua. 
Joshua, you want to know, is God for the Israelites? Is God for the Canaanites? Let me tell you who God is for, Joshua. God is for God. And this land is holy. Where you're standing, Joshua, this is holy ground. What does that mean? It belongs to God. So take off your shoes. Joshua, you belong to God. And Joshua, the people of Israel belong to God because God is holy and so his land will be holy. And the way you're going to move forward into this land is by acknowledging from day one that this land is God's land. It's holy. What does holy mean? Holy simply means something is set apart for God's purposes, set apart for God's use. I was thinking about the concept this week and I realized there's an illustration of holiness in my own house, right? Because I have a holy chair. It's my chair. And only I in my home am allowed to sit in my chair. Right? So if you come over to, to my house and you sit in my chair, I will be gracious, but I might ask you to sit somewhere else. Right? My kids are not allowed to sit in my chair. Now, there are many other chairs in the house. They can sit in any of the chairs. And I tell them, there are many chairs in any chair of the house. You may sit freely. You may sit. You may sit. Right? But in my chair, you may not sit in it, nor may you touch it. Okay? It's my chair. Now, what happens? Sometimes they violate my wishes and they sit in my chair. So I come into the room and they look up at me in my chair and they say, hi, daddy. And I say, no, my chair is my chair. Vacate or I shall vacate you, right? Because it's my chair. That's the concept of holiness. It's set apart. It's reserved for a particular purpose. If you got married long enough ago, you may have registered for fine china, right? People don't do that as often anymore, but you register for special china that you only use on special occasions. You don't use it every night for dinner. You certainly don't use it as a dog bowl. It's set apart, all right? It's holy. Before they go into the land, God says, Joshua, we need to get one thing clear. This land is holy. It belongs to me. It's set apart for my purposes. So you will not use the land as the nations have used the land. You will not even conquer the land in the same way the nations conquered the land. Because it's holy. So take off your shoes. It belongs to me as all the world belongs to me. All right, this helps us understand, in fact, what happens after the battle of Jericho in chapter 6, verses 15 to 21. I want to read these verses for a moment and then explain for just a minute how it relates to the concept of holiness, starting in verse 15. And then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. 
And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. So the wall falls down and they go in and they destroy everybody and everything. And then they take the gold and the silver and it's dedicated to the Lord. It's dedicated to the tabernacle. Now that's going to be significant in our passage next week. But for this morning, here's what, here's what I want to point out. Everything in the city, in this Canaanite city, is under the ban. That's a Hebrew word, cherem. All right. And, and this word essentially means it's devoted It's devoted to God. Everything in the city, the people, the animals, the gold and silver, it all is handed over to God. And that means that the people and the animals, they die. And the gold and the silver go into the tabernacle. right? And one of the questions that comes up is why is there this purging of the land? Why is there this type of a war? And here it is. It relates to this reality that this land is holy. It's not the Israelites' land. It's not the Canaanites' land. It's God's land. And here's what we forget about the Canaanites, is that the Canaanites have been living there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, all the way back to the time of Abraham, when God promised the land to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you're going to inherit this land that you're on, but you need to know your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years and then they're going to come back. And the reason they're going to come back after 400 years, it says it very specifically in Genesis 15. You know why? The iniquity of the Amorite, that is the Canaanite, is not yet complete. That is, the Canaanites haven't done all the sinning yet that they're going to do. And so essentially God says, I'm going to give the Canaanites hundreds of years to turn around to change the way they approach me, to change the way they approach the land, right? The the worship of the Canaanite gods was violent. Often they sacrificed their own children on the altar. It was sexually immoral and it was vile. For generation after generation after generation, And so now the day of judgment has come where God uses his people to say, this land is mine. It's holy. And often stories like this make us uncomfortable. There are a number of them in the book of Joshua. Because we prefer to think of a peacekeeping God. And we struggle with the holiness of God. And yet, even as we go through the New Testament, what we see is that right now we are in an era of mercy and grace where the gospel is proclaimed to all creation and everybody in creation has an opportunity to believe in Jesus, right? But the day of judgment will once again come. So you see in Revelation chapter 19, what happens? Jesus comes from the clouds and he's riding on a horse and he's wearing a robe. And what is his robe dipped in? It's dipped in blood, right? And what's coming out of his mouth? There's a sword coming out of his mouth. And he comes down to earth and an angel from the heaven says, hey, all the birds of heaven, you need to come because there's going to be a great feast where you will feast on the bodies of all of the nations who have disobeyed and rebelled against God. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, they still had flannel boards. Some of you will remember flannel boards, right? And they would put Jesus and the disciples and all the other people on the flannel board, little animals. I never saw the blood-dipped Jesus with a sword out of his mouth on a flannel board. I never saw little crows eating the bodies of the other flannel people, right? Because we are uncomfortable with that Jesus. We're uncomfortable with that God. 
right? But God says, I want you, Israel, to approach this battle in a particular way because I'm holy. And I want my people to be holy and I want my land to be holy and set apart. And so they begin to see the holiness of God revealed in his plan that at first glance seems strange. And the nations begin to understand the holiness of God. That God isn't like the other gods. But his people are called to live differently, to be different than the nations around them. So we see the faithfulness of God and the holiness of God. Thirdly, we see the mercy of God. Look at verses 22 to 25. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring out the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold. The harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So I love this passage because the one person in the entire city who doesn't die with her family is Rahab, the town prostitute. Okay, now, now this, is, this is remarkable, and here's why. You, you, you have to understand, why is it that Rahab is spared? Well, you, you go back a few chapters, and what happened? You remember before they went into Jericho, they sent some spies just to spy out the city. And Rahab brought the spies into her home, and she hid them so that they could spy it out and then get away. But, but what's more significant is this, that Rahab tells them why she did that. And she says, look, everybody has heard what God did through the Israelites. Everybody around, we've all heard it. We have heard that God led you out of Egypt and he parted the Red Sea. We have heard that you defeated these two kings on the other side of the Jordan River. Sihon and Og were their names. We heard that God gave you victory over them. And so we know that your God is the God of heaven and earth. So she says, because you worship the true God, please, If you would, when you take this city, because I know your God will win, when you take this city, will you please spare my life and that of my family? And they say, yes, if you will hide us and get us out of here, we will do that. Right now, what's remarkable about this is that everybody in Jericho knew what was coming. Everybody in Jericho had the same opportunity Rahab had. Right, and yet in all of the city of Jericho, Rahab, the harlot, is the one who believes and is saved. And in fact, in the book of James, James will use Rahab as an example of faith. Because God is merciful, even to the worst of sinners. Right? And what, what I love about the end here of Joshua chapter 6 is it demonstrates something about God's heart, and about faith in him. And that is that often the first to trust in him, the first to recognize their need, are those who are considered at the bottom of the social ladder, the weak, the outcast, the poor. So all of the important men and women in Jericho say, we're gonna stand our ground, even though we know who's coming. And Rahab says, no, I trust their God, because he's greater than our gods. And she's saved. 
God has a heart for sinners. God has a heart for the weak and lowly. One of my favorite books that I have read with all three of our kids is Charlotte's Web, the classic by E.B. White about the little pig, Wilbur, and the spider, Charlotte. And one of the things that I love about it is uh, that at every turn in this book, you see stronger creatures or people trying to take care of the weaker. So you remember the book begins and Wilbur, this little runty pig, is about to be put to death because he's a runt. And so Fern, the farmer's daughter, she steps in out of the mercy and kindness of her heart and she saves Wilbur. She says, I'll raise him, I'll, I'll take care of him. And then she takes him to a barn, her uncle's barn. And Wilbur grows up there and Wilbur befriends who? Charlotte the spider. Nobody likes Charlotte the spider because she's a spider. Except Wilbur, who looks beyond what she looks like and loves this spider. And then the spider loves the pig and she saves this little runty pig from death out of the mercy and kindness of her heart because he showed kindness to her because Fern shown kindness to him. And you see this heart of mercy for the weak move its way through this novel so that by the time I get to the end of the book, I always find myself in tears, right? I tell my kids, it's just allergy season, right? (laughs) But I feel this book deeply because it represents something about the heart of God, that he loves sinners and he loves to rescue those who are helpless. And that's who Rahab is. I think Rahab realized she had no real hope for a life apart from trusting in God. And so she does. It may be that of all the characters in the story this morning, she's the one that you identify with most. Because maybe you're here and you say, you know, I'm kind of a mess. I don't know if I know God. I don't know if God wants to know me. Right, and the message of the scripture we see, even in this passage of battle, is that God is merciful. And the preeminent example of his mercy and grace is his son, Jesus Christ, who died for the worst of sinners, including you and me, and rose again so we can have eternal life. That's the God we serve. And all who trust in him can have eternal life. So we see God's faithfulness, God's holiness, God's mercy, even in the midst of a very strange plan. And where the passage ends us is not only that God's plans are hard to understand and his character can be trusted, but this, God's fame spreads when we obey. Look at verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Here's what happens. Because of this battle, all the other cities begin to hear about what God is doing. And they respond in different ways, but they all begin to hear the God of the Israelites is great, right? It's not about Joshua. It's about the God of the Israelites who is with them, who is leading them through the land. And some people turn from the gods of the Canaanites and they say, we want to join you because you're on the right team. And others don't. But the fame of God spreads throughout the land because they see his character when the Israelites obey. And so the question for us as we close is this. Will you and I obey God even when his commands don't seem to make sense? Even when his commands set us apart 
from those around us in uncomfortable ways. So remembering this week that when I was a freshman in college, I lived in a dorm at A&M. And even then, uh, the majority of those at, at Texas A&M, at this big university, were not necessarily trying to faithfully walk with Jesus. I'd say the majority probably didn't really know Jesus, right? So we lived in this dorm and there, there was a group of friends and we said, you know what, we're not all that special, but we do want to walk with Jesus, right? So we would do things like have Bible studies in our rooms, spend time in prayer. We avoided the crazy parties and sexual immorality and drunkenness that pervaded the hall that we lived on. Right, we went to church and that tended to stand out because we came back from church right as everybody else was waking up from their Saturday night plans. And, and there were times that people made comments or ridiculed or ostracized us. But then as the year went on and then the next year, there were times that people would come in moments of crisis and say, now tell me why you live differently again. Tell me why you pursue a different path. I know you're religious. Tell me about that. And we would have an opportunity to talk about the faithful character, the merciful character, the holy character of God expressed in Jesus Christ. So the question is, will will we obey God even when his commands don't seem to make sense? Even when there seems to be no immediate benefit and it sets us at odds with those around us, will we trust God's character to know that he's always faithful and always good? Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for the morning and we thank you for your word. We pray we would trust you even when your word doesn't seem to make a lot of sense from a worldly perspective. Father, we pray we would pursue holiness and faithfulness not to try to earn some kind of favor from you, but instead because you've given us your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ and you want the world to know that and we're called to reflect and proclaim it. So we pray that we would. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.